He's been the artistic director of both Classic Stage Company here in Manhattan and the Seattle Rep and worked with Arthur Miller and Edward Albee, respectively, on the Broadway productions of The Ride Down Mount Morgan and The Goat or Who is Sylvia. And he has countless credits in New York and around the country. He most recently steered Alfred Urey's Driving Miss Daisy to its Broadway debut. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I always enjoy a chance to talk with Director David Bjornsson. Thank you, Howard. So Driving Miss Daisy is, to use a word you just used before we started taping, a brand at this point in its life. The show itself is 23 years old. The movie is already 20 years old. What is it like to take on directing a new production of a brand? Well, that's uh, that was the big question when we started the whole process of uh, putting Miss Daisy on, on Broadway. First of all, it had not been on Broadway, so that was a new thing. Uh, but it had the movie, uh, you know, in in place already, and that was the experience that most people had with with the story. Even though it had a very successful off Broadway run at uh, Playwrights Horizons in the early '80s. Many people didn't even know that it was a play. In fact, there were there were people who said, oh, I didn't know that they made a play out of the movie. So you are caught in that situation of, of having to um, reintroduce uh, the, the play to the public uh, hmm. and remind them that in, indeed it is a theatrical experience first and foremost. Do you have a sense of whether people – Look at the show with the expectations of the movie because the play is so much simpler. There are characters spoken of in the play that are never seen, though in the movie we see them. Right. Do you get a sense that, that people are surprised at how spare the play actually is? I think they are a bit. I uh, was very aware that Bully in the movie was made uh, – Bully is the, is the son of Daisy – was made to be somewhat of a supporting character. But in the play, uh, this character played by Boyd Gaines is uh, instrumental in in the entire uh, uh, event. He, he, in fact, um, constitutes a third of the, uh, of the production in no uncertain terms. And I really needed to have somebody who was as strong as Boyd in that position because the – the approach to the production was such that I, I wanted it to be a look backward. I wanted it to be through Bully's eyes and that we were taking uh, a backward glance at the story. We weren't suggesting that this represented race relationships now in, in, in this period of time, but that we were looking back at an earlier, earlier time and that we were doing that through this character. And so I think when people come to see the play, they're, they're surprised at how present that character is. They tend to remember Daisy and Hoke, of course, and should, and those are really uh, wonderful roles. Um, but there is a, there's an important glue in between and there's a transformation that that character makes as well. And so it becomes a very, uh, very well-constructed uh, piece of theater, I think. You used the word strong in terms of describing the the role of Bully. You have an exceptionally strong cast. Now, you've only got three people on stage, but you've got, you know, 
multiple award winners in multiple mediums in all three roles in Vanessa Redgrave, James Earl Jones, and as you said, Boyd Gaines. Um, when you went to cast the show, was it about we want these people or the producers wanted these people or was it a process of thinking through who might be right and who might fit together? It's always a process of thinking through. Uh, I mean I suppose there are exceptions to that and you have somebody that must play a certain role and you have that in your mind and you wait for that person. But if you want to go forward with a project and you're looking at who might do it, I think it, it's really important with this particular play and because of uh, of its reputation, because people know the story so well that it be performed by really incredible talent. There was a, a, a real need to think about not only who could do these roles in a, in a, in a strong and credible way uh, because they had been so defined you know, by Morgan Friedman and, and Jessica Tandy, but also how could they fit together and become a company and really present the play. And that's, that's the thing that live theater uh, always asks of you is, is how can you sustain it? How can you, keep, how can you do it over and over again? And of course, these are brilliant stage actors, people who we could rely on to do performances night after night and uh, give delight to the audience. One of the things that struck me when the cast was first announced was that in the case of Vanessa Redgrave and James Earl Jones, they are both, let's just say, veteran performers. Mm -hmm. Whereas when the show was first done at Playwrights Horizons, Dana Ivey and Morgan Freeman, who originated the roles, I think Dana might have been in her late 30s at the time and Morgan Freeman was probably in his 40s. Mm -hmm. Your actors are several decades older than that. Right. Did that pose a challenge or does the play have enough freedom that it's irrelevant? Well, uh, there are some challenges, of course, to taking the play that far into into their ages. I mean, I think the... Uh, the original impulse uh, seemed to be, or at least the original impulse in the casting at Playwrights Horizons was to watch a middle-aged woman and man go through a process of aging uh, over time and you got the span of uh, of this play of its 20 years through watching that, that full transformation. And so we're picking up in a different place and I think we could do that in a sense because Jessica Tandy played it in the movie. There was, there was, a, um, there was a precedent for an older actress to, to take it on. In fact, when, um, when we started to think about who, who, who might do this, it had to be, it had to be people of a certain age who could still um, learn the words, who could, um, who could actually, you know, present this material night after night uh, and have the stage chops to do it. And so we're, we're looking at people – we're looking at these, these particular actors as, um, as an assurance that the play would somehow be able to be delivered. And age becomes somewhat irrelevant in that case. I remember early on at, when I was at the um, – the Long Wharf, Franny Sternhagen, who also, by the way, played Daisy. At I think she point. succeeded Dana Ivey. She in the did, role. and I saw her do it. 
But she played her younger self in a Romulus Linney play up there and I thought it was one of the most wonderful performances I'd ever seen. I couldn't believe that this woman who was um, – I don't remember what she was at that point, maybe in her 60s, could play a woman of 20 so convincingly. Hmm. And I think what what is um, true about um, about older actors is they can always go back to when they were younger but people can't go forward. Hmm. They can't they, – they don't know what they're going to be in their older age, but they do remember what they were like in their youth. Some people have talked about the character of Hoke and the fact that he is ultimately a very strong man who is put in a position of subservience. When James Earl Jones walks out on the stage, you know – it's a strong man because he is a big man and he has a big voice. Was there a challenge either for you or for him in terms of re-inhabiting a subservient role, which is not something he's had to play for a long time? Yeah, I think James was really interested in doing this part just because it offered him an opportunity to do something a bit different. James has this amazing instrument which you which cannot be denied in any any situation he comes out and you hear that voice and you are uh, mesmerized by by um, by what you know what that talent offers you um, I think though that he did something very smart and and that was to think about hoax subservience if you will as being a psychological thing or being a social thing. I think a strong man, a strong black man in, in, that, in that culture at that particular time had to go through life in a, in a particular way, in a careful way and occupied extremely gray areas. And James knows those people. He knows how those people functioned. He knows, uh, he knows where, where, where they were at in their heads and so – what I think you, what I don't think you want is to have somebody who is beaten down in any way or or not aware of the circumstances, but someone who can navigate it, somebody who can who can understand the circumstances that they're in and still manage to make it through with a with a dignity and a grace. And James, of course, as a person and as an actor, has that. He he can he can give that to the audience in such a profound way. And it's different from what Morgan did, but it's equally valid and I think very, very strong. We've been talking about how the vision of the film is so impressed on people's minds and we're, we're really leaving out another vision, which is Alfred Urey's. Alfred mm -hmm. was a guest on this program not long ago and made very clear, as he always has, that Daisy Worthen is his grandmother. Mm -hmm. He – has in his mind a real person. Was that at all part of your discussions with him? At what was it? Was it about playing the character on the page and putting those characters into life, or did did you gather from him more about who those people really were? You know, he didn't impose that on me in any way. He knows who those people are, and I think he he felt as we were going through the process of rehearsal that he was hearing those those folks from his past mm -hmm. uh, and he would he would say so often which encouraged both me and the actors 
I think we were looking for qualities and these actors all in, uh, have the qualities that, the, that are necessary to perform these characters. It's a very honest play. He's writing from experience. There's, um, there's not a false note in it and um, it's an intimate play. It's not meant to be a treatise on the civil rights movement. It's just meant to be a story in which the civil rights movement is a backdrop. And there, and I think that there are wonderful and interesting resonances and I think that the play does deal with what's going on. But it isn't trying to be all things to all people. It is telling a very specific and personal story and I think he's done a beautiful job with that. Since you mentioned intimacy, this was a play, as you acknowledged, that began off Broadway. It was done – it's probably been done on stages of all sizes in many different countries in the 23 years it's been around. But was there any particular challenge to taking a three-character intimate play and putting it onto a broadway size stage, not granted the size of one of the big musical houses, mm -hmm. but still much larger than the original stage of Playwrights Horizons. There is a bit of a challenge, but I had done The Goat uh, in the Golden Theater. And when John Lee Beatty, the set designer, and I were talking about theaters and looking at them, we were pretty convinced that we wanted to be in the Golden because it is the most intimate of the spaces that we were shown. And I knew that the actors would be much more comfortable in that space. I think that the Golden is pretty much as intimate as any theater I, I've ever produced in. Um, I'm not talking about this, you know, the small 300 seats, but you can't do this play with Vanessa Redgrave, Jason Earl Jones and Boyd Gaines in a 300 seat theater. It just wouldn't work out. Um, but I think that their size, their stature as actors was, uh, uh, was sufficient to um, to fill that house in, in, in a very satisfying way, and I think they're larger than life. They become larger than life in a place that is that intimate. And I, I'm glad we're not in a bigger place. I'm, I think it, I think it's important to the play. Would it be fun to see them in a small little room? Of course it would, but that but the economics just won't allow for that. So since we're talking about small places and big places. You grew up in a small town west of Minneapolis, I believe I read. 100 miles west. So how do you go from a small town in Minnesota? Where do you find your theater growing up? Did you find theater growing up or was that something that you came to at a later age? You know, I have all my roots in Minnesota uh, in terms of my interest in theater. My, my father was a theater director and teacher at high school and he entered – At the high school you went to? At the high school that I went uh -huh. to, which was uh, complicated at times. But I was so interested in, in the theater and in being involved that I just w waited for my opportunity to be able to act and I was directed by him at times, uh, others as well. But it was a pretty small – you know. I think there were uh, 350 students altogether. But he introduced me to uh, Ennui's Antigone and to uh, Orestes and to uh, uh, the Firebugs. There were, we did this incredible material and I quickly learned – In a 350-student high school? Yeah. My god. Yeah. And, and he also then helped to start the community theater and I did some, some of my work. 
there. But he had been inspired by Tyrone Guthrie who had come to Minneapolis and done ta- town hall meetings and had you – know, it was really there – was there was a whole effort to get all of the five-state area – um, in Minnesota, Iowa, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wisconsin to become involved and make the Guthrie their theater. And so the outreach was fantastic. And as a student, I went to see plays at the Guthrie. I went with my aunt to see – I mean there was, there, was such a, there was such a connection to – in every aspect of my life to theater. My father, my aunt, the Guthrie – even you know, even my college and uh, uh, Gustavus Adolphus College had a small thrust stage built like the Guthrie. You know, mm-hmm. a small little theater, but but with a th- but we learned to work on a thrust uh, as as undergraduates. Mm-hmm. And um, no, it, it was a very exciting time, and you felt like the theater was uh, almost operated like a beacon. It sort of grabbed you and pulled you and and uh, seduced you. Uh, and I guess I felt that when I was in school and particularly in high school that it became such a great way to learn. I could I, I suddenly knew all the all the characters in the House of Atreus. I I, I knew them intimately through the through the plays and I just thought this is fantastic. I can have fun and I can learn at the same time. So what did you get an undergraduate degree in? Theater um, English literature with a minor in art. Hmm. If you were already so in love with theater, why didn't you make the decision to go to a larger theater school for undergraduate work? What kept you in the Well, I was a small-town boy and I probably hmm. didn't have the courage to venture into uh, you know, larger territory quite that quickly. I um, I also wasn't certain when I finished undergraduate because I had been so immersed in it that uh, that it was what I wanted anymore. Mm-hmm. I had to find out, and so I went and I I went away from the theater for almost five years. Really? I did all sorts of things and and ended up working in display in San Francisco as, in in the shop because I had learned all these technical skills in in undergraduate and. Um, a variety of jobs, but ultimately, I was just brought back to the fact that I missed this activity. I missed this art form and wanted to do it. And that's when I made the move east. You moved from San Francisco east because I felt that if I was going to seriously go at it, mm-hmm. that I had to go to New York. I had to put myself in that situation, terrified as I might be of the big city. I had to San Francisco didn't scare you, but New York did. San Francisco is actually a fairly small place in many ways. It's, it, you know, it feels benign. When I got off the plane here in New York, I'd never experienced anything like that in my life. Now you went to NYU uh, to study directing for graduate work. When you went to do that, I'm just curious. Obviously, you had this familial support. In terms of inspiring your love of theater, was there a moment where anybody said, you know, it's it's great to enjoy it and have fun with it, but now it's time to get serious? Or was there complete support for your continuing and and trying to be a theater professional? Well, I think that the, the difficult time for my parents was when I wasn't doing it. Huh. They seemed to be a bit aimless and because they understood that so much and they understood – my connection to it, for me not to do that for a period of years was, I think, 
difficult. And so you had the rare experience st- of your parents being worried that you weren't doing theater. I think so. <laughs> we don't hear that story very no, often. No, you don't. And uh, I, I, you know, it could have. I suppose it could have been anything that would have given me pleasure. And and uh, yet, and I and I think when I got into NYU, and it was a very that was not an easy process because I'd been out of the out of the theater had never done it professionally and I had to try to get into a professional training school and I had to account for the fact that for four years I hadn't done it. But I worked really hard on it and I got in. There were only four people. Tony Kushner was my classmate and um, my parents I think were were satisfied at that point that I had achieved something because I was now um, – because they were educators. I was now uh, about to get an MFA in – Theater from New York University, and that, and I think that that would have been fine. I could have gone into maybe some teaching or something like that at a college level, uh, possibly. Uh, so and you, you had something to fall back on. Was the, <laughs> there was, well, I think I think in some way uh, it it was a a bit of a safety net to think that I might do theater, but I might do it in an academic setting, right? The scary thing is when you put yourself out there and you try to make it in the professional world, and and that's you know that's full of all sorts of ups and downs and and uh, insecurities, etc. So I think that this what this offered something in between. Before we get to that, I want to ask you about the fact that you told me that you were studying directing, but you were also studying acting when you were at NYU. Yes, I. Decided that if I was going to get an MFA and it, you kind of laugh at what the cost of that was back then but it seemed – it, it just seemed astronomical. To, it was still astronomical. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I thought I'd, I'd, I wanted to do something that was, that was more comprehensive. I felt directing – and I still do. I feel like it includes design. It, it includes writing. It includes acting and, and of course uh, – uh, a particular vision and approach to the material in the way of designing it and seeing how how, how a production actually functions and 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 illuminates a play. So I thought, well, this is so what you know, this is so comprehensive. This will be the way I should approach any uh, advanced degree. So that's what I did. But I always had in my mind that I would be going back to acting, and I thought, well, but I. Because I only did character roles, and <laughs> thus I, you know, wore a beard while while I was, you know, in my twenties. Because I always had to do the um, the older roles or the or the the best friend kind of roles, and uh, uh, and when I was at NYU, somehow I had to make a decision about that. I decided at that moment that I really loved directing. I had come to. Uh, understand that it was uh, closer to myself than than acting. The acting felt like uh, only one aspect of the things that I was interested in. Mm-hmm. Now let's come back to the insecurities and the struggles of you get out of NYU. How do you go about starting to get directing gigs? Well, I don't know how anybody does it. <laughs> I want to know how you did it. Uh, I just – I just started to uh, go after anything that that came to me, and I had I had some good luck. 
some there were some graduate students from Circle in the Square, so, some women who wanted to do a production of Top Girls. A friend of mine, who was also a director and is now a television director, was going to work with them and and couldn't and and suggested that they get together with me. So they were in the same situation, and we essentially produced ourselves. I followed it up with the production of Fefu and Her Friends by Maria Irene Fornes. And we did both of those at the Ohio Theater Space, we were down in Soho. We used our tip money, our you know, whatever it was that we could possibly muster in terms of resources, and we put these plays on, and a number of people came. I also at the same time was um, applied for and got the New York Theater Workshop New Directors Project. Uh, David Warren and Michael Greif were my two other people in my group. They chose and, well. And we got our first professional production. We we were given professional designers and actors and really that was what gave me my uh, – So what was the big break? What was the show? Oh, you're going to laugh. It was um, – it, it was uh, Kreutz's Farmyard, which was probably one of the most um, harrowing <laughs> and and um, and artistically uh, challenging kinds of plays that you could possibly do. It had just about everything you could imagine as a challenge in it, including live animals and near abortion scenes and uh, all, all sorts of you know sexual deviation and. And somehow uh, it became this amazingly good experience and positive enough to uh, to get the attention of Romulus Lenny who asked me to do his first play at the Long Wharf and then Arvin Brown said yes and that became the beginning of my – What play was that? It was called Laughing Stock and that's where I met Franny uh, Sternhagen, Francis Sternhagen and, and Sloan Shelton and Kathleen Chalfont were also in it and Kathleen was somebody who had – I did farmyard with, and we and I just kind of built from there. So, I know I'm jumping ahead time wise a little bit, but you mentioned your classmate Tony Kushner, and certainly, relatively early on, you had the opportunity to direct the very first production of Millennium Approaches, the first half of Angels in America, out at the Eureka Theater, mm-hmm. and I assume that was a case of they decided to do the play, and Tony said. I'd like to work with my friend David on it. Well, it's there's a long history there and I won't get into all of it with you. I was the associate director at the Taper while it was in workshop form and then Oscar had moved to the Taper at that point. So I became the director – It's Oscar Eustace. Oscar Eustace, sorry, yes. And, um, and I became the director at the Eureka for its uh, premiere. We also uh, at the same time were, were supporting a – the, a first um, uh, presentation, I guess, is the best way of putting it, of Perestroika, which was at that time about seven hours long. It included all of the Slavs material. Yeah, I mean, people don't realize yeah. now that that there are literally, I hate to use the word, outtakes yeah. from Perestroika that became another an entire whole play. other play. Yes, and we. Uh, in order to accomplish that, uh, Tony wrote bridges that describe certain things. I staged one scene from each of the five acts fully off book. The rest of the time, the actors held on to their scripts and then they would step out and, and narrate at certain points. And then, and then in front of the five acts, we'd, we would do the, the scenes from Slavs, which were the Bolsheviks. So it was a very, very interesting event because you had a fully produced first half 
with the angel flying for the first time and um, and then they came back and it got into this into this very very different place this very um, um, sort of abstract and presentational place but it, it but it was uh, it was absolutely fascinating it was like a basketball game people were they would talk back at the stage they would stand up and cheer in the middle of it and it just became very clear that this was uh, this was something very special mm-hmm. After the taper and Eureka, at what point did you say, now it's time to go back to New York? Again, it's this this San Francisco, New York travel I'm noting a little well, bit. Yeah, no, I, I, I actually have spent about 10 years of my life on the West Coast between Seattle and San Francisco and Los Angeles. No, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't really left New York. I had gotten a TCG uh, NEA directing fellowship and that had brought me to the West Coast. I didn't know if I was coming back to New York but I decided to do that at the end of that period of time. And I had done a number of other projects out there including something at South Coast and, and at LATC. But I, I guess I, I, never left, I never let go of my apartment here. I never really decided that I was going to be out there permanently. And I thought maybe I would look into th- into uh, television at some point, but I, that never happened. I just <laughs> seemed to be always connected to the theater that was happening. So, how did you get the classic stage gig? Well, that was when I came back, and um, you know, uh, every time you make a move from one coast to the other, there's a period of time where you have to. Uh, a lot, you know, you have to allow for everyone to sort of know your back and for you to get back into the swing of things. You know, it takes a little, there's a little adjustment time. So it's never a good time to make really, really uh, snap decisions. And I think this gave me a chance to think about what I wanted to do next. And I had, because I had a little downtime suddenly. I'd worked really hard on a bunch of things and and it was actually kind of exhausted. And Carrie Perloff actually said, I think you should put your hat in the ring uh, for Classic Stage Company. And we should say that Carrie was the outgoing artistic director. And she had just gotten a job at ACT. And if I remember correctly, Carrie had replaced the founder of CSC. Was or was there someone in yeah. between? Because there was Christopher Martin. Yeah, and then there were, and then his associate Craig Kinzer took it over for a year, ah, okay. and then Carrie took it took it over. And I think she was there about five years. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I had gone to CSC and saw plays under all those people, and it was very close to NYU, and we used to go and see things that we couldn't see anywhere else. So I, I it had a wonderful reputation. I think there were over a hundred and. Some applications for the artistic director job, so it was not an easy, not an easy thing. I had to go through a few hoops, but um, yeah, all of a sudden I had myself a theater. <laughs> and were, do you think you were prepared for that? Because as a director, clearly you were more than capable. You'd already done notable work at a number of theaters. Were you prepared for being the head of an institution? You know, that's a very good question. I don't know that there's any. Buddy that prepares artistic directors. Uh, I don't know that there, there's no training program for artistic directors. You, 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 uh, you, you jump into it and you and you learn as you go. And maybe that's a fault in our in our theater culture. I, I'm not sure, but I think if anyone told you what it was, you might not do it. So I mean, because it, it really is. It's so involving, and when especially when you're working at a small theater. There's so much asked of you. You literally are there breathing it day and night. And the only problem I had, I think, 
initially was that there wasn't any money. There, was not, there wasn't anything there for me. So I had to really build and I had to, I had to hire people. I didn't uh, – my managing director was on maternity leave. My uh, – the, the – um, I had – I had two other people there who were, you know, uh, somebody who was sort of operated as a kind of a girl Friday or, a, you know, she was more than a secretary. She was more involved in that. And then a production manager who was back and who sort of helped technically with the, right. sh- the show. And when you say you had a couple of people there, you mean that was the full-time that, that, staff. That was the staff. And right. so, so the next, you know, the next couple of years had to do with building the theater, getting funding from – from the community all over again, and when you're when the theater is that small, it's all based on who's in charge of it, and so you have to make a relationship with the funders uh, yourself. And until you do that, there isn't any, there aren't any resources. You, I mean, the board has a certain amount, but but they but they don't really give you everything that you need to to uh, to put on the plays. The one opportunity you do get when you are an artistic director is you truly get to choose not only what you want to direct. But what other people are going to direct. Right. And was that your first opportunity to have at some plays you'd always wanted to have oh, at? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and because the theater was small enough and uh, had had such a specific mission, I was able to do some really wonderful things or things that I wouldn't be hired to do other places. So I, I consider that um, a great gift uh, to be able to be the artistic director. Uh, seven years I, I, I occupied that position and maybe one year too long. I was pretty exhausted by the time I left. But I was really grateful for the for the time and I, and I had some amazing experiences with some of the best actors and designers in, in New York. Well, to quickly run down just some of the plays that you directed, uh, Crap's Last Tape, The Maids, The Illusion, Endgame, Entertaining Mr. Sloan – uh, the Entertainer, funny how those fell right next to each other. I mean some really terrific stuff. I don't have the list of, of what you had guest directors doing. Yeah. In terms of guest directors, you know, how did you make the choice of who to bring in? Were there – Well, I knew a lot of people, you know, just, uh, people who had grown up with me, uh, Brian Kula, Karen Coonrod, uh, uh, Michael Mayer. So these were all people that I wanted to give opportunities to. I mean the wonderful thing about being an artistic director is you get the chance to invite everybody to the playground and uh, and and they and I think if you if you trust in the talent that you've hired then you you really can allow them to soar and to do what they do best. And you have to guide of course and you have to put parameters on it. But I think if you communicate those Everyone's willing to play along, and I think some of the most interesting work comes out of uh, comes out of those environments because it really is about how can you give it enough integrity and 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 give it a, a, a and give the place a feeling where where artistic risk is possible. These are all it's, it just, it just seems to me that that you have a, a, a great responsibility, but also the pleasure of of seeing artists grow and and become uh, who they're capable of, um, and I think that was true of the directors that I hired. In your time there, and I'm going to use the term as a producer because mm-hmm. you were both putting on shows and directing shows. Um, of all of the shows at CSC in your tenure, what would you say was the biggest risk you took? Wow. Um, 
That's a, that's a good question. They all felt like that to me. Uh, you know, I, there were so many unknown titles or, or where I would take a, a, I would take a classic and have somebody do their own version of it and, uh, you know, so I, I felt like, I felt that the risk was, was, was happening all the time. There were some critical moments. One of them was before entertaining Mr. Sloan when I really didn't know at that moment whether the theater could, you know, afford to produce another production and it it went extremely well and suddenly the place was packed and we were fine again but it was it's very hand to mouth mm-hmm. when you're when you're working at that level especially back then i mean there's more infrastructure i think for all all off broadway theaters now but of course the costs are higher as well right so after you left classic stage you had the opportunity to do I believe it was the U.S. premiere of Arthur Miller's The Ride Down Mount Morgan. You know, it was done at Williamstown. Aha. Okay, um, so that was before. Yeah, and uh, – but it um, – I, I don't – I'm not really sure. But they they they, they decided to change um, – Change everything mm-hmm. and when they went to the public, and uh, I was asked to do it at the public theater. But that's you know that's heady stuff to say. Um, we have this new Arthur Miller play. We <laughs> like you to do it. Certainly, in all in a lot of those plays that I just listed that you'd worked on that you directed yourself. I mean, you didn't have Joe Orton with you when you right. when you were doing Entertaining Mr. Sloan. Arthur Miller is about as daunting as one can get in in the pantheon of. Living playwrights at that time, right. Arthur and 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 Edward Albee probably, right. who of course you can get a chance to work with later on. But so, tell me about going to work with Arthur Miller. Well, I I never uh, I I kind of went with the um, with the feeling that it was a. Just an opportunity for me to meet him, you know. I I, <laughs> I thought, well, that's that would be enough, you know, if mm-hmm. I could if I could just have that experience. And I was just um, I was so struck by how warm he was and and easy to talk to. And suddenly, I felt like I was expressing certain ideas about the play, and and there was a there was just an ease to our conversation that I just did not expect. Hmm. And at the end of that meeting, he makes this snap judgment. He just he just stands up and he goes, I think you might be the man for the job. Hmm. And I walked out of there uh, completely surprised that A, that he would make that determination on the spot and secondly, that, that, that it had been such a, a positive and easy experience to, to talk artistically with him. Hmm. And was that ease continued throughout the process with the play? Sure, but when you start a rehearsal process and you've got other people in the room, there's always a certain amount of okay, we we made this decision, but now let's see what we actually are are, uh, are all about. And there was a, a point in which Arthur was in the room and Patrick Stewart was there, and I think at that point Blythe Danner was part of it too, and. And I would make some comment about the material and I knew it wasn't landing. I wasn't really getting my answer and I was maybe to some extent criticizing it at certain points. But I knew I needed to make a certain amount of change in the script in order to make it succeed. And eventually that trust came. It it wasn't there initially uh, because we were still, you know, sussing each other out. 
and he was Arthur Miller. I mean, so you know, <laughs> you hit, and he's got you, a good forty years. Yeah, on you know, you and, and, and so what am I doing, right? I'm you know t- talking to him about uh, about the play, but as a director, you have to do the job. You can't. You you, you know, you, you're not gonna you're not gonna get anywhere by. Um, you know, by just sitting on your hands and not not speaking the truth as you see it, or 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 even just even if it's not the, the truth, it it it's the way you understand the play, and you can only you can only direct the play the way you understand it. You can't do somebody else's version of it. And I think we found a really great um, uh, way of uh, that. The, the ease of talking about it did not change privately. But I, but it takes a certain amount of negotiation to do all that publicly. Mm. Well, clearly it worked out. You had the unique opportunity to do the play again with right. many of the principal actors the same when it went to Broadway. But it wasn't an immediate transfer. There was a good year and a half between the time it had played down at the public and the time it went to Broadway. I guess that's true. Yeah. So did you have an opportunity – when the Broadway production was done, to revisit the play yet again, or were you essentially remounting the public production? Uh, we did revisit the play, and we did some significant work on the end of the play. And I remember that being um, a big focus of of the second go around. I also took took design ideas further. I was able to articulate certain aspects of the play uh, visually in a way that I wasn't able to do it at the public. But the, the, the basic approach to it was, was similar and mm-hmm. I, so I was able to build on it. That was an example of where I was able to continue the work, which is um, – it's absolutely a gift when you get to do that. Because mm-hmm. theater takes a while, you can You know, we we're so used to putting it up quickly and fast, and when you, you and yet when you get an opportunity to do it over a period of time, the result is so much stronger. It's why European theater uh, continues to be so powerful, is because the, these are companies that work on it and develop it and build it. Uh, we have to do things a little bit uh, too quickly sometimes, and so this offered me the opportunity to hone it. Mm-hmm. Now about. Same time, I think within the same year, you had an opportunity for a bit of a homecoming. You spoke earlier about how incredibly influential the Guthrie had been mm-hmm. uh, on theater going in the entire area around Minneapolis. You said five states. I would imagine being invited to direct at the Guthrie, which you did in 2000. Was that the first time when you I did think the head I, of Gabler? I, was, uh, I did Summer and Smoke there first. Ah, OK. I and um, and I, I, I think I've done a, a total of five productions there now. But Summer and Smoke was my first one and it was uh, – I think I was a replacement for somebody hmm. and came in at the last moment uh, – the, I think it was the last play of the season. Hmm. And it just ended up being one of those – Think productions that just worked. It was just beautiful, and Lila Robbins was just ex- extraordinary in it. And um, yeah, it really it was it was a homecoming, and 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 my parents and and the, my friends and all of that were uh, were thrilled for me, and it was uh, it it was very very meaningful. And um, I think that allowed me to circle back and to do. My work with Edward Albee and, and Arthur Miller out there. Uh, by that point, I was a little more established with with, with that company, but it was really a, um, 
it, it was it was so wonderful to share my professional experiences with these amazing playwrights uh, back home, in a sense. Hmm. Now, when did the relationship with Edward begin? About the same time, a little bit later than with um, than with Arthur, and uh, we were actually talking about who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. At the same time, I was doing the ride down Mount Morgan, and Patrick Stewart overheard us and said, oh, I would love to be considered for George in that. And so ultimately he came to the Guthrie Theater with me and Mercedes Rule played Martha. And uh, and at the same time that that was happening, Edward asked me to do the play about the baby. So I ended up doing Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or beginning the process for that and it was in- interrupted by the play about the baby which actually opened first. Hmm. So while the – while I was in previews for the play about the baby, I was also in rehearsals for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and ended up doing those two almost simultaneously. Wow. And at the – and then very quickly after that because two weeks later, I was at the Guthrie and two weeks after that, we were up. Edward came to the first preview and that is the first – at that moment, he offered me the goat. Hmm. So all of that happened uh, within a, a few months. I have to ask you about the goat because it is – along with Virginia Woolf, my particular favorite of Edward's work. And I'm wondering what the process with Edward was like because if I remember, there were reports of a lot of tweaking of the end of the play, that figuring out how that was going to work was was a challenge. How much of it was a script challenge? How much of it was a staging challenge? Well, they they were both – happening simultaneously and I don't know that we'll ever know <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or if you do, you're not telling. But you know, what 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 happened with the play is I think we just realized that we needed less. It was a much more complex uh, ending to the play and there was something so powerful about Stevie dragging that goat on and the, the, after that, you know, there was the, the words, you know, just kind of went away. You know, you didn't need them because mm. because the power of the of the imagery and the power of the idea uh, became so manifest that you just didn't want to hear people talk about things anymore. You know, there was a it had a very um, it had a very Greek feeling to it. You know, it always did. But I think we started to trust that it, that it could be more spare. And Edward was very uh, keen on editing uh, and making the precise edits that were necessary to – and I think he I mean, he did a certain amount of rewriting too. But mostly it was just stripping away. Hmm. Interesting. You mentioned that you did several plays with Arthur. You went back to the Guthrie and did Resurrection Blues out there with him. I've noticed that – even now since he's passed away, you've done several more of his plays. And I'm wondering how your experience with him when he was with us has informed your work on the plays which came before mm-hmm. the ones you worked on and, of course, where he's not there right. to say to you what he might be thinking about it. Well, I have the uh – the great fortune to have worked with him on on these uh, later works, and I and I say that because not because they are 
going to ever rival Death of a Salesman or some of the other cl- more classic plays but because they were an opportunity to work with him like I would work with any contemporary writer and we were – and so I was able to uh, exchange ideas, think about approach, inf- you know, do something – you know, ha- have some influence on structure and it was an entirely collaborative experience which I don't think – you would necessarily have on a, on a revival of one of the more established plays. So when I did All My Sons at the Huntington, I was absolutely blown away by how much he had taken care of business, how much he provided for the actor and how powerful that could be if you were just to bring all the information that you knew about Arthur into the room. So my job I think in both – uh, all my sons, and then and then most recently, I, I went to Dublin and did Death of a Salesman and with Harris, with Harris Ulan, yeah, who was extraordinary in it. It was a mega hit, and I had the I had the creme de la creme of uh, of Dublin theater uh, artists in that production as well, and. But every time I uh, – when I did both of those plays, their established plays, I just tried to bring his voice, what I understood about him, what I knew about him into the room and I tried to share that with the companies and I and I felt like I had information from working on him in this other way that really illuminated the play and gave me um, – gave me a real center that I that I probably wouldn't have had if I hadn't had these other experiences. I I'm amazed at the at how powerful those plays can be when they're really well performed. Uh, it's it it sort of knocks your socks off. You commented that when you left classic stage, you might have stayed a year too long. <laughs> um but in the next decade, you made the choice to go back to being an artistic director when you were given the opportunity um, to run Seattle Rep. And I'm wondering what made you want to jump back into the deep end of the pool and how that earlier experience at a small hand-to-mouth organization mm-hmm. influenced your experience going to a much larger, much better financed uh, theater – albeit on the other side of the country. Right. Well, you know, I think you go back and forth and I think it's why people teach as well. You, you, um, there's a point at which you need to find a way of giving back, of providing opportunity for other people, uh, supporting other artists and other visions and also to build something, to build some sort of home or community. And, and you know, you go into the I, – I, I, you know, I did seven years at Classic Stage and then I did a seven years of freelance and then I went to Seattle. And it sounds now, very biblical with the yeah, seven years and seven, seven years. years. Seven years, seven years. I guess it must be the itch. But I, I, I guess I – I've always been a little uh, yin and yang about that. I mean I feel that, that – there's a, there's a certain energy and a certain way in which you you function in the world as a freelance director, and then there are times when you just need to change the course and and to and to orient yourself differently and to you know and just give some other people an opportunity to work and also give yourself a certain amount of of um, you, you know you move from thing to thing. Uh, it's nice to be in one spot for a while. It's nice to be able to build. You know, a certain amount of work over a period of time, and and point to that and say, that's what I'm about, or that's what we're about, and 
you know, you don't quite get – I mean I suppose if somebody wanted to actually look at you, your career, your freelance career in a comprehensive way, they might see – they might see a pattern there. But it's very different when you're connected to an institution. When you're, you're an institution, it's a body of work. It's a body of work that you can say. by a consistent audience. That's right. For better or for worse, by a consistent group of press. Right. Um, so it is, you know, you can make your statement more. Yeah, my career over the last year has been Boston, L.A., New York, uh, Cincinnati, Philadelphia. Now, how is anybody going to put that together? You know, I can, and I can, and I can see the relationship. But okay, I was going to ask that question later, but I'm going to ask it now. You have an exceptionally diverse list of shows that you have done. We've talked about Miller and Albee, but there's, you know, there's Hamlet, there's Twelfth Night, there are new plays, um, Tuesdays with Maury, um, you know, Equivocation, Gabriel. I mean, a wide range. Is there a David S. Bjornsson type of play? What do you see as the continuity through all of your work? That because of geography, nobody but you can see. <laughs> oh, I got caught there, didn't I? Yes, you did. Um, I was going to ask the question anyway, but you really set me up. Yeah, you know, I I think that I'm I'm very attracted to material generally that's offbeat, but I also sometimes find you know with a with a really strong story, like you know, somebody will say, well, how can you do? Um, uh, Susan Laurie Parks and you can, and do Tuesdays with Maury at the same time, you know, and it's because I find something about each of those things that's that's unique, and I believe that theater exists in its time and place, and sometimes it feels absolutely right to be to be there and to be doing that particular project, and then I think, well, okay, what what else do I need now to grow? What will push me further? What will make me a stronger artist? Or what? Or 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 maybe I don't know something about a particular play, or I'm af- I'm afraid of doing a particular Shakespeare play because I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to approach it. Those are the reasons I do it because I I feel like if I if I put the challenges there and I meet the challenges that I that I that I step forward and I move forward and I become better and all of these projects for whatever reason have offered me challenges that excite me and that make me feel as though I am moving forward and learning and growing. So that I really take those steps and I want my work to be eclectic. I don't want to do just a, a certain type of thing. In fact, when I was at Classic Stage Company, no one would – before I went to Classic Stage Company, no one would hire me to, to do a classic play. Now I really have the ability to go back and forth between – classics and new work. I've done a lot of new work development, but I've also now done a fair amount of of what people determine to be classical material. And so I'm I've I've been given certain freedoms that I would not have. I guess um I believe that you have to see how the acting, the the design and the material and you connect. It it has to be clear to me how that's going to happen. Um, or I have to be so intrigued by it that I'm willing to put myself on the line and discover it. And either one is exciting. Before we began the interview off the air, I asked you, you know, was there anything imminent coming up? And you said there's some but not ready to announce them all yet. So let me ask you what the future holds in this way. Are there particular challenges that you – still want to face down 
And if so, what are they? You know, I still think that there is um, – I still think that there is a, a, a place and a time when I want to be able to find uh, a circumstance where – I don't know if I want to be an artistic director as it's defined now. But I like the idea of having an artistic leadership role. I don't know if the educational system is the place for that. I don't – I'm looking for that place, that place I can call home where I can have the freedom to do really risky and experimental things. And right now that doesn't actually exist as far as I know because the economic pressures and the circumstances that exist now in, in the theater are so profound that it's, it's hard to make those choices and be responsible fiscally to an institution. But, you know, you kind of hope that you can keep doing the things that matter to you, that are risky, that maybe are not totally popular in nature and that you can support other people's visions in that regard too. That, I would love that to happen. I don't know if I, I – I don't know what that is exactly and I, and I don't know if it's in regional theater or if it's in a – if it's in another theater here in, in New York – but in the meantime, I'm just going to go after the things that matter to me and that I think are exciting and challenging and uh, and uh, when those and, and if that opportunity presents itself, I may grab it. Well, I'm going to let that be the final words and say, David S. Bjornson, thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing and also be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit our website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.